welcome to this Hardwick podcast. My name is Phil Patterson. Uh, in this podcast, I, I will be providing an update on some recent corporate insolvency uh, cases of note. You can find the details for all the cases and statutes that I refer to in this podcast on the Hardwick website. Uh, in uh, this podcast, I'm going to be covering three uh, main areas. First of all, I'm going to look at a recent uh, significant case on fraudulent trading. Then I'm going to go on to consider a range of recent cases uh, in the category of misfeasance, transactions defrauding creditors and uh, the duties of directors. And then finally, I'm going to explore how some recent cases have dealt with an issue relating to the time at which out-of-court appointments of administrators take effect. Looking first at fraudulent trading. Section 213 of the Insolvency Act is often and easily criticised as a provision. It's perhaps accurate to say that whilst fraudulent trading is often alleged in letters of claim, applications issued under it are rare. Uh, generally, where such applications are issued, it's tied in with other stronger claims, such as wrongful trading uh, under Section 214 or misfeasance under Section 212. Successful Section 213 applications are even rarer, uh, and perhaps part of the reason why can be traced back to what, became, what came before Section 213. Um, and that's because fraudulent trading was previously dealt with in Section 332 uh, of the 1948 Companies Act. And that provision was very heavily criticised in the landmark Cork Report um, of the 1980s. Uh, and what happened thereafter was that Section 332 was split between Sections 213 of the Insolvency Act 1986 uh, and Section uh, 423 of the same Act, um, and that's the provision relating to transactions defrauding creditors. And then in addition, a new Section 214, which is the wrongful trading provision, was created uh, and added in. The reality, I think, is that most cases will gravitate towards one of these uh, two alternative uh, bases before they're considered under Section 213. So the first case I want to talk about is uh, a recent successful uh, fraudulent trading claim um, that was brought earlier this year. Um, the case was Ray Pantile's Investments, uh, and it was a claim brought by uh, Mr. James Dowers, uh, who's the liquidator of uh, Pantile's Investments Limited. And the claim was brought against Ms. Sabine uh, Winkler, the sole director and sole shareholder of uh, Pantile's. But in fact, the central figure in the story was a different person, uh, Peter Goldbart. Mr. Goldbart was an associate and friend of Ms. Winkler's, um, uh, and in fact, the only real point to Pantiles as a company, uh, and in fact, the only business it ever did, was the purchase of a property, uh, 656 Finchley Road, from uh, Mr. Goldbart for £550,000. This was the property that Mr. Goldbart lived in um, with his wife. Uh, and Pantiles itself had no assets to speak of, uh, and Ms. Winkler had, uh, did not and had no intention of contributing uh, any personal funds towards the purchase of the property. In fact, the, the purchase was to be paid for by, by a various loans from uh, companies associated with uh, Mr. Goldbart's wife. 
Mr. and Mrs. Goldbart remained in the property after it was sold to Pantiles. Uh, and then when Mr. Goldbart subsequently became bankrupt, his trustee, uh, Stephen Hunt, successfully challenged the sale of the property as a transaction defrauding creditors. This necessitated a payment back to Mr. Hunt uh, of a quarter of a million pounds by Pantiles. Um, and that payment was funded from the proceeds of the onward sale of the property uh, to a third party. Pantiles itself was then wound up on a petition by uh, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, and Ms Winkler was pursued under Section 213, effectively for her role in the transaction that I've just described. Um, Insolvency and Companies Court Judge Mullen uh, was satisfied that Ms Winkler was guilty of fraudulent trading. Um, he rejected her suggestions that the property was purchased as an investment, and he said that the ruinous finance agreements made uh, rendered it implausible to view the arrangement uh, as an investment from the company's perspective. The judge further held that Ms Winkler was in breach of sections 172 and 173 of the Companies Act 2006, essentially because she had ceded control of the company to Mr Goldfarb and had caused it to enter into the transaction, which was, uh, in his words, manifestly not in the company's interests. Now, this is an extreme case in many ways. The fraudulent trading claim was undoubtedly assisted by the fact that the transaction itself had already been reviewed in such detail in the proceedings brought by Mr Hunt. Uh, and I think it's interesting also, given the historical context, to see the relationship between sections 213 and 423 here. Um, and I think it shows that there is still a role, uh, even if uh, a somewhat limited one, for Section 213 uh, of the Act. Next, I want to look at three cases uh, which I've put under the broader headings of uh, misfeasance and the duties of directors. The first is a decision of the Court of Appeal in Global Corporate Limited against Dirk Hale. This is a decision of November 2018. Um, it's a company which had uh, two uh, directors uh, and two shareholders who were the same people. And um, on the basis of uh, tax advice that was given, uh, one of those uh, individuals was paid a, a very small salary, uh, just sufficient to cover the national insurance contributions that were required. But this was topped up, this remuneration was topped up by a substantial dividend that was paid each month. This was a procedure that was followed uh, for some time, and in the event that there were insufficient distributable reserves to cover that level of dividend at the end of the year, the dividends were notionally reversed by the company's accountants and then recharacterized as salary payments. Perhaps inevitably, the company went into voluntary liquidation, uh, and during the course uh, of the year in which it went into liquidation, a number of these dividend payments had been made um, and had been recorded as interim dividends uh, by the accountant. Now, at first instance, his honour judge Matthews held that because the payments were subject to confirmation later by the accountants, they were not unlawful dividends, uh, and he concluded that the director was not guilty of uh, misfeasance. Um, the judge's reasoning uh, is set out at paragraph 38 of that judgment. Um, what he said was this. 
If it stood alone, the fact that, acting on this advice, the respondent signed tax dividend forms for the payments would be sufficient evidence that the decisions were being made to declare dividends definitively at the various times of payment. But it does not stand alone. It is completely at odds with what the respondent knew, i.e. that dividends could only lawfully be declared if there were sufficient reserves, and also that it could not be known then whether there were, and thirdly, as in earlier years, the accountant would only decide uh, once the accounts for the year showed the distributable reserve position. On the other hand, his action in signing the forms is consistent with his doing what the company accountant advised him to do in order to achieve the apparently lawful tax saving. Accordingly, having seen and heard the respondent give evidence, I do not consider that he thought he was making definitive decisions about declaring dividends. Instead, in my view, he thought that he was not making any decision at all at that stage, because it all depended on whether there were distributable reserves, and at that stage this was not and could not be known. In the alternative, His Honour Judge Matthews concluded that any liability to repay the sums um, was held to be subject to an equivalent quantum merit back for the services that he had rendered. Now, the Court of Appeal did not agree with either part of His Honour Judge Matthews' decision at first instance. On the question of the status of the payments, the trial judge was criticised for focusing too much on the uh, subjective intention of the uh, director shareholder, um, it, it apparently expressed in one quite short passage of cross-examination, and not enough on the proper character uh, of the payments themselves. And the Court of Appeal noticed that there were no service contracts in place for the remuneration uh, to be retrospectively attributed to. Um, and uh, therefore at the time the payments were received they were received by the respondent in his capacity as a shareholder so what the court of appeal found was that pending the declaration later of a dividend these payments were gratuitous uh, and therefore the arrangement amounted to one of misfeasance and on the second issue, the Court of Appeal found that any quantum merit claim which might arise in such a situation would be an unliquidated claim, um, for which the liquidator might potentially be able to prove, uh, but he wasn't entitled to set it off. In any event, uh, the Court of Appeal noticed that under the Articles, a contract for services would need a board resolution to implement it and the Court of Appeal was not prepared to imply such a contract into uh, the company's arrangements, effectively in contravention of its own articles. Um, now, I suspect that the decision of the Court of Appeal has caused a collective sigh of relief, um, not least because the respondents' actions uh, in this company are, were hardly unusual. Um, and I think if His Honour Judge Matthews was correct in his analysis, it would have opened up a fairly large loophole for owner-managers to exploit, um, which I, I think undoubtedly would have been problematic. And so I think the decision of the Court of Appeal there is to be um, welcomed. And the next case uh, I'm coming to discuss uh, concerns uh, Section 423, which is the provision uh, prohibiting transactions defrauding creditors. And the case is uh, known typically as BTI against Sequana, um, which is also a decision of the Court of Appeal um, that was given in February uh, 2019. 
Uh, it had a very high-profile cast of counsel uh, in this case. A very large number of arguments were raised, uh, and it generated a lengthy and uh, quite complex judgment. Uh, and for the purposes of this podcast, uh, I'm, I'm aiming only really to distill down uh, some of the most significant points uh, of the case. The origins of the case can be traced back to the pollution of a river in uh, Wisconsin in uh, the USA. Uh, and liability for that pollution fell with a company, BAT, uh, which had acquired a number of paper businesses uh, which had been causing the pollution. BAT was indemnified by uh, AWA, the previous occupier of, of the relevant site. Uh, and AWA was a wholly owned subsidiary of uh, Sequana. In 2008 and 2009, AWA paid substantial dividends uh, to uh, Sequana, and these dividends discharged an existing intragroup debt uh, owed to uh, Sequana. And it paid the dividends despite the existence of a number of contingent claims, including the one to indemnify BAT. Um, and furthermore, it had ceased trading by this point. Now, BTI was set up by BAT and then subsequently replaced um, AWA as the claimant following an assignment. And it brought proceedings against the directors who had authorised the uh, dividend payments for breach of duty. Um, it also claimed against Sequana as constructive trustee. And then furthermore, BAT brought a claim under Section 423 in its capacity as a potential creditor of um, BTI. And at first instance, Mrs Justice Rose dismissed the breach of duty claims on the basis that AWA's risk of insolvency at the time the dividend was paid um, was not such uh, as to trigger, trigger the common law duty to have regards to the interests of creditors. Judgment was, however, given against Sequana under Section 423, and it was ordered to pay back the uh, dividend to BTI. Now, the principal issues for the Court of Appeal concerned whether the payment of an otherwise lawful dividend could be a transaction defrauding creditors and whether the payment of such a dividend could amount to a breach uh, of the duties of directors to take into account the interests of creditors. And the Court of Appeal was content that the dividends fell within the scope of Section 423. Um, it was, uh, as defined, a transaction, and the reference to a gift in Section 423 uh, did not uh, detract from that. So the Court of Appeal had no conceptual difficulty in the concept of uh, an otherwise lawful dividend uh, being declared for the purposes of putting assets beyond the reach of creditors um, or uh, for prejudicing their interests. In relation to breach of duty, uh, the Court of Appeal found that the duty to creditors is engaged uh, when the directors know or should know that the company is or is likely to become insolvent. Uh, and likely in that context meant um, probable. Uh, since, therefore, there was no justification for a finding that AWA was insolvent or likely to become so at the date of the dividend payment, the judge had been entitled to dismiss BTI's claim um, based on Section 172, uh, subsection 3. 
So the appeals and cross appeals were dismissed uh, and the judgment of Mrs Justice Rose was both upheld uh, and significantly praised by the Court of Appeal. And the final case I'm going to look at under this section is Burnden Holdings against Fielding. Uh, and this is really an interesting follow-up to the uh, Sequana case. In this case, a company and its liquidators brought proceedings against its two majority uh, uh, shareholder directors um, in respect of true transactions uh, affected by them. Um, transaction one was a grant uh, to the directors themselves of uh, security for loans made by them to the company. Um, this was alleged to be a dishonest breach of fiduciary duty, uh, particularly in the absence of a board meeting to authorise it, um, and a transaction defrauding creditors. The second transaction was uh, a distribution in specie by the company of its shareholding in a subsidiary um, known as V. Uh, this was said to be unlawful and in breach of fiduciary duty because it did not meet the requirements uh, of the 1985 Companies Act, um, specifically sections 263, uh, that distributions could only be made from profits, uh, and section 270, and distributions to be justified by reference to the accounts. Um, and it was also characterised as a dishonest breach of fiduciary duty under section 1723 um, because the directors knew that the company was or likely to become insolvent uh, and failed to consider the creditors' interests. Now, the claims were dismissed uh, and uh, the, the court found that liability for these claims uh, are always fault-based and not strict. So if the directors knew the facts uh, constituting an unlawful dividend, they would be liable as if for breach of trust, irrespective of whether they knew the dividend itself was unlawful. However, if they were unaware of the facts rendering the dividend unlawful, they would not be personally liable if they had taken reasonable care to secure the preparation of accounts uh, which showed that uh, a lawful dividend could be paid, even if it subsequently emerged that there were insufficient profits to do so. And on this occasion, the court found that the dividends were not paid with the intention of prejudicing uh, creditors. Um, and so, as I say, the claims uh, in this case failed. Now, finally, I want to look briefly uh, at uh, an issue of the out-of-court appointment of administrators. And the advent of the new rules in 2016 has thrown up an apparent anomaly in relation to the procedure for uh, and the timing of out-of-court appointment of administrators. Rule 3.17 sets out the information which must be included on the notice of appointment uh, under paragraph 14 of Schedule B1, where the appointment is made by a qualifying floating charge holder, and the equivalent provisions where the appointment is being made by the company are Rules 3.24 and 3.25, depending on whether or not there has been a prior notice of intention to appoint. Where the appointment is made by the company, there is a requirement to state the date and time of the appointment. Uh, there is no equivalent obligation on the uh, uh, appointment by a qualifying floating charge holder. And it's not clear why there is such a distinction. 
But it also presents a problem in that it is the act of filing the notice of appointment which gives effect to the appointment itself. Um, and that's apparent from paragraph 31 of Schedule B1. And what it appears to suggest is that the uh, company must preempt the date and time of a future act when completing the notice itself. This point was considered in Ray NJM Clothing by His Honour Judge Klein, uh, sitting as a High Court judge in March 2018. And he interpreted these provisions in relation to directors such that the proper sequence of events uh, in his mind was first that the directors decide to appoint an administrator, second that the directors give notice of intention to appoint, third the directors make the appointment and fourth the directors file the notice of appointment. So consequently, even if momentarily, the appointment had to precede the filing. Now, a slightly different approach was followed in the uh, Ray Tauster Racecourse case by His Honour Judge Matthews. Um, there, uh, the judge concluded that it would be absurd for the appointment of an administrator to take place after the notice of appointment was filed. However, he was of the view that the appointment could take place at the same time as the filing of the notice. And he also felt that notice could be given by reference to an event occurring in the future, such as, for example, the time uh, of the filing. And in Finally, in Ray Space's London Bridge, Mr Justice Nugie concluded that the statutory requirement for a notice of appointment filed by a company or its directors to contain the date and time of the appointment referred to the date and time that the notice is filed. And in that case, uh, such a director's notice was, was valid, even if it didn't specify a specific date and time uh, of appointment. Um, but uh, under the standard practice of the notice being endorsed by the court with the date and time of filing. Now, it, it's hoped, I think, certainly following the last case, that this question has now been uh, resolved. Um, and that's certainly a positive thing, because a number of practitioners were quite concerned when the new rules came out. However, the judgment of Mr Justice Barling in the HMV Commerce and HMV Retail case is also of interest on a slightly different point. On the 28th of December 2018, the boards of those two companies within the HMV uh, retailer group filed notices of appointment of administrators, and the notices were filed electronically at 5.54pm. Later that evening, a telephone hearing took place at which Mr Justice Barling concluded that uh, the appointments were valid and took effect at 5.54pm. Now, in filing the notices they had, the boards were acting in accordance with the electronic working pilot scheme uh, contained within Practice Direction 510 uh, of the CPR. Now, that scheme expressly excluded its use by the qualifying floating charge holders, um, and they were directed in terms uh, under the Practice Direction to Section 3.20 of the Insolvency Rules. No mention was, however, made in the practice direction about companies seeking to appoint administrators. However, the insolvency practice direction, which came into force in July 2018, 
appeared to suggest that the scheme could not be used for any appointment of administrators um, outside of working hours, i.e. after 4.30pm. The administrators appointed uh, following this hearing therefore sought clarification. Um, and the, they, they needed to do so because the effect of the practice direction was not considered at the telephone hearing uh, which took place between Christmas and New Year. Um, had it been, there could have been scope to use Rule 12.64 to waive uh, any defect or to have extended uh, time for compliance beyond 4.30pm. And Mr Justice Barling had difficulty identifying what the purpose of that provision in the practice direction might have been. Um, he was satisfied that to the extent that there was a breach here, it was an inadvertent one by the companies. Um, and it was a breach of a procedural provision and not one which would go to the validity of the appointments. Added to that, uh, the judge found that no conceivable injustice arose. Um, and in any event, he wasn't certain that the practice direction did apply um, to uh, appointments by the company. In any event, he was prepared to waive uh, any defects and to retrospectively um, extend time. So accordingly, the appointments remained uh, validly uh, made at 5.54pm on the 28th of December. Now, to wrap things up, I think 2019 has been a relatively quiet year so far in terms of reported corporate insolvency cases. Uh, certain topics remain popular um, for reported litigation, most notably issues relating to the duties of directors, um, issues with out-of-court appointments, um, and perhaps ironically, and uh, the interface between adjudication and insolvency. Overall, I think reported litigation arising out of the new rules remains less than some had feared. Um, but there do remain some teething problems, um, and, and some of those problems were, have been observed since the rules were first published. So there is quite possibly some scope for further litigation to come. I would add on top that the economic climate remains tough, uh, particularly for retailers and manufacturers, uh, and it's possible that the collapse of British Steel may lead to a plethora of litigation in much the same way as we saw following the collapse of uh, Carillion. But it remains to be seen uh, what is to come in the second half of 2019. That concludes this Hardwick podcast on the topic of uh, corporate insolvency uh, recent cases. We hope you found it interesting and useful. You might like to subscribe to our podcast series by way of Apple Podcast, Spotify or whatever podcast medium you use. You can also find out more information on the Hardwick website, hardwick.co.uk. Thank you for listening. Hardwick is a barrister's chambers which specialises in legal advice and advocacy in the areas of clinical negligence and personal injury, commercial dispute resolution, construction, insolvency insurance, private client, professional liability and property. This podcast is provided free of charge for information purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and should not be relied on as such. No responsibility for the accuracy and or correctness of the information and commentary or any consequences of relying on it 
is assumed or accepted by any member of Hardwick or by Hardwick as a whole.